For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out about StoryCorps' arrival in Tucson. Visit a peaceful Asian oasis in the middle of the city. Hear how love for a neighborhood park and a family's loss helped a community find common ground. And discover music created by five artists who used the Museum of Contemporary Art in Tucson as a soundscape. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The StoryCorps segments that air every Friday on Morning Edition have been responsible for creating many driveway moments, those instances when listeners wait in the car just another few minutes to hear the end of a story. Operating under the motto, listening is an act of love, StoryCorps has been listening to people from every walk of life since 2003. And this week, one of their mobile recording studios arrived in Tucson for a month-long stay. I talked with Jordan Bullard, the mobile tour manager for StoryCorps, about where the power of this project comes from. It's multifold as far as the power of StoryCorps. The stories that you hear on Friday morning during Morning Edition, I think, speak to things that people have in common with, with one another, regardless of their background. You know, uh, whether it's a powerful conversation with a loved one uh, or a remembrance of a time and a place that meant something um, to the people. Uh, in the broadcast, I think it resonates across a really broad uh, sort of channel for folks who, who are chiming in to listen, whether they're listening from Tucson or listening from uh, South Carolina or New York or California, wherever that may be. I think people really identify with StoryCorps and, and the stories that we broadcast. I think that's partially sort of the power that lies within StoryCorps. I think more kind of behind the scenes is that it's people really benefit from being able to sort of stand up and tell their story and to be heard. And not everybody has the opportunity to do that. That's almost the, the more quiet sort of impact that, that StoryCorps has is the ability for people to, to finally be able to tell their story as it is for themselves um, and, and be heard. And, and also to, to hear someone, to, to really sit and be present and turn off your cell phone, um, get away from the computer, get away from the busyness of life and just sit and listen to someone that you love, I think is a very powerful thing. In the time that you've been with the organization, have you seen the name grow and more people recognize it and welcome StoryCorps when they come to their city? Yeah, I think so. I think that um, StoryCorps is really doing some very interesting things and, and has started doing interesting things in the past three years with some of our initiatives that we started. Like our Military Voices Initiative is something that we've started relatively recently and it has a broad impact. And, you know, we have other initiatives like our, our GRIO initiative, which highlights the voices and stories of African-Americans across the country. Our Historias initiative, which highlights the stories of um, the Latin American population across the country. And, and similarly, one of our newest initiatives is our Out Loud initiative, which highlights the stories of the LGBTQ community, which is, is here. It's a, a community that's very strong. It's a way that people now are starting to, to know StoryCorps more through, through different initiatives. We're reaching out to different communities that maybe not, but would not have uh, known StoryCorps before. Can you give us an idea to someone who's hearing this interview and thinking, I think I might like to try that. What, what can they expect when they go to the site? 
we record in an Airstream trailer. Um, so it's very iconic. It's a big silver trailer, a big silver RV that's been repurposed as a recording studio. And it's very comfortable. To oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very comfortable. It's very cozy, sort of intentionally so. Um, and it's, you know, a big, shiny trailer with StoryCorps written on the side, so you can't miss it. Um, and once you go in, you will be welcomed by our facilitators. Now, a facilitator, basically, I like to say a facilitator is a mixture between a radio engineer and a social worker. Um, people who have, you know, hearts of gold, they hear these stories, um, basically people telling their life stories and pouring their heart out every day. So our facilitators are really wonderful people. They'll prep you, they'll do a sound check and make sure that you're ready to have a broadcast quality conversation with someone that you love. And that's the key is to have a conversation with someone that means a lot to you, whether it's a family member, a spouse, a good friend, someone that you love, that you can have a free-flowing conversation with. And that appointment, that 40-minute conversation, uh, it, it, it lasts 40 minutes. It's uninterrupted. There are no cell phones. There's no you know, kids asking for you in the background. There's no emails to answer. It's just time to sit down and have a conversation with someone um, that, that means a lot to you. Maybe it, it could be someone that you've always wanted to ask a question about. Um, maybe it's, you want to come in and, and memorialize somebody or memorialize a place or a, a period of time in your life. Um, and I think that the, the Airstream provides an opportunity for people to do that. And, and there's an interesting amount of license that I think people get when they step in front of a microphone and probably in many cases for the first time, kind of a powerful moment. And I think it, it really enables people to reflect, um, and, and ask those questions. And I think in a lot of ways it can be really cathartic, um, so, I mean, by and large, I think people can expect a really good, really powerful experience. Um, and after those 40 minutes, um, they will have a, a broadcast quality CD ready for them of their of the 40-minute the raw audio that they just recorded. Um, and they can share that with everybody they know, or they can hide it, they can store it in a safe. It's theirs to do with whatever they want. Some people might be curious what StoryCorps then does with those recordings. Sure. We are an oral history project. As long as we have permission from all of our participants, we archive our stories in the Library of Congress. And to me, that is one of the coolest things about what we do, because we're, we're literally writing history as we go through the country and as people are telling us the things that are important to them. This Already, now that StoryCorps is more than 10 years old, people involved in academia across the country are, have been able to start to use StoryCorps' archive as a resource for what life is like in different uh, places across the country. So the archive is one major thing that we do um, once we do record those stories. Um, obviously, for folks who are familiar with StoryCorps, they'll recognize our, our broadcasts every Friday morning on Morning Edition. And that's a huge part of what we do, but it's also less than 1% of the stories we record end up being broadcast nationally on the air. Um, and But that that is a huge way that people know us. People know StoryCorps by what they hear on the radio. Um, but a large part of what we do is that archival piece of, you know, we have more than 100,000 stories now archived in the Library of Congress. And that's a pretty huge undertaking that's taken us more than 10 years. So it's a big part of what we do. Thanksgiving weekend, StoryCorps encourages everyone to participate in the great Thanksgiving listen and record stories from family and friends in your own home. You can find resources to help do it at storycore.org.
The mobile recording studio is stationed in Tucson near the entrance to the Reed Park Zoo until December 19th. Information about making a reservation is available at azpm.org. There are only about 250 public Japanese gardens in North America, and Tucson is home to one of the newest. It provides an Asian oasis in the middle of the city on Alvernon near Grant, and it represents a dream come true for the woman behind the plans and the plants. Yume Japanese Gardens of Tucson opened its doors in 2013, but it's been years in the making, part of a decades-long transcontinental journey for its founder and director. My name is Patricia DeRider, and I am actually managing a Japanese garden. Patricia DeRider is originally from Europe, but while she was still a teenager, she began a new and exotic chapter in her life. She convinced her parents to allow her to move to Japan, alone to a foreign country thousands of miles away from her family's home. I was uh, born in Belgium, and uh, I lived there for about 18 years, but I knew from early on that I wanted to discover Japan. And I went there to study Japanese and stayed 15 years. From Japan, it was on to the United States. She moved to Wisconsin with her American husband where they raised two children. When the kids became adults, the writer decided to add a different destination to her adventures. After the cold Midwestern winters, sunny Tucson seemed especially attractive. When I moved, I had to recreate myself, basically, because I didn't have the jobs that I had up north. And my parents passed away and um, left me an estate, which I sold. And eventually, I decided I was going to do what I always wanted to do my whole life, is to create a Japanese garden and a museum. She was able to purchase a property for the gardens, and her long-term plan was under construction. And uh, it took me about a year, a year and a half to build it because it was just, there was nothing here. And we opened in 2013. That's the sound of the shakuhachi, a Japanese flute being played by Tucson resident and ethnomusicologist Paul Amiel. My wife and I lived in Japan, in Nagoya, for a year, and we loved the gardens and visited a lot. So to have something like this on Alvernon uh, was stunning. Amiel has become a big fan of the gardens. He says the surroundings complement and enhance the musical experience. With the shakuhachi, the Japanese flute, it really fits this setting. And to play here is very different than playing in my living room or playing anywhere else. And so the fact that this is here uh, is, helps the meditation of the instrument and helps my understanding of what it means.
Derider says she wants to provide a place for peace, meditation, and education. The facility includes a typical Japanese country home, a small museum, and a pond with brightly colored koi fish. In Japan, she says, most gardens do not have ponds unless they are located on sprawling properties such as temples or palaces. But it's such a part of a Japanese garden, at least in the image of everybody in the Western world, that uh, we have that pond. And the pond is composed of different uh, elements. You have to have a pebble beach. You have to have koi, of course. Uh, you usually have an island. Uh, and a small waterfall, uh, not very big. Usually it's more like a stream coming into the pond. The way the Japanese gardens are made, they're the very human scale, and they, they make you more peaceful if you take the time to stop and smell the rose. <laughs> For now, the writer doesn't have much time to rest herself. The gardens have become a full-time job that require her constant attention and commitment. <laughs> yes, you can say that. It is a lot of work, but it's worth it, I hope, as long as people come. Actually, the name of the garden is Dream in Japanese. Yume means dream. And I always had hope to share what I had learned. And I had a, a mentor when I was in Japan who said, at a certain age, you have to return what you have received. And it's my way of returning. It's an ongoing narrative that spans three continents and different decades. A woman from Belgium who moved to Japan and now owns a Japanese garden in the Sonoran Desert of Arizona. It may sound unusual, but well, that's the story of my life. That's a summary of the life that I've had. It's, it's really the, yeah, the summary of what I've lived for. I, I don't know how else to explain it. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. You can see video of the Japanese garden and learn more about the facility on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. This month, Pima County voters declined to approve more than $800 million in loans to improve county infrastructure. Less than 1% of that money would have gone to repairing a bustling park on Tucson's west side called Joaquin Murrieta. The park was born of civil unrest in the 1960s, and neighboring residents have never stopped supporting it. Mariana Dale has the story. Joaquin Murrieta right Park is 43 acres of baseball fields, playgrounds, and ramadas on Tucson's west side. It's home to Senior League, Softball, and Western Little League. Sherry Hoskinson knows the park. My uh, boys play ball at, at Murrieta Park. Um, my youngest son played and my oldest son coached him, and we spent years uh, sitting on bleachers at Marietta Park and playing games. More than a decade separated her oldest son, Lee, who's now 28, and his younger brother, Harry. He was always the one that was leading the chants in the dugouts for the other players and, and first one to do, you know, a backflip when someone had a great play. Joaquin Murrieta Park is the setting for fond family memories, but it also has problems. 
Gophers and bad irrigation made the ball fields infamous, Hoskinson says. Come to be known as the western bounce. A wild ball hits a gopher hole and, you know, can actually injure uh, a player, hit him in the head after a bounce. Hoskinson and other parents from Western Little League dedicated countless hours at public meetings advocating for investment in the park. My youngest, Harry, uh, one of the reasons we became involved aggressively is that he passed away uh, last March. Harry died at age 13 in an accident. Hoskinson says her son had big plans after Little League. He was going to play professional football or baseball, but first he would join the Army. To me, he's just, he's Captain America. He is, you know, honest and integrity and watching out for other people and kind of that blonde look. Instead of gifts or flowers, Hoskinson asked people to give money to fix up Joaquin Murrieta Park. About $20,000 has come in so far. Gentlemen, bring it in. This past spring, we were uh, able um, to um, use the Harry Hoskinson's Memorial Fund money to help pay for the new fence that they built out there. That's Dan Castro, a Western Little League parent. He says he remembers Hoskinson's son from past seasons when his own son played on the opposing team. I look back and I see the photos and I, I totally remember him. And um, now I know that Harry is here. He's a part of our teams. He's a part of our league. And he still lives within all these little guys out here. Harry's death taught his sons about the value of life. One of the many lessons Castro says they've learned on and off the ball field. Because not everything's going to go your way. You might come in last place or you might finish second, third, and not always get that championship. And that's kind of how it is in life. You know, I try to instill those, those values of, you know, giving it 100%. Whether Castro's sons win or lose next season, it will be on new grass, paid for in part by the money from Harry's fund. There's uh, still quite a list of scoreboards, uh, field uh, improvements, the uh, spectator areas. Um, I think our snack bar's in pretty good shape, though. The recent changes haven't gone unnoticed by Cristina Ballesteros, she and her husband watch their grandson's practice, rain or shine. You go out and really enjoy just walking around the park, you know, before there was a lot of gopher holes and you would have to be looking down, you know, because it was dangerous. Councilwoman Rahina Romero represents the West Side. She says when the economy plummeted in 2008, the city saw years of increasing budget deficits. The Parks and Recreation Department budget shrank almost 30 percent in the last decade. Because the city of Tucson lives through sales taxes, and when people stop buying, um, cities really feel it. The park was up for $5 million in the failed Pima County bond election. The community will have to look elsewhere for money to improve it now. Even though it has lots of need, it is highly used. And it is not a park that's just there that nobody goes to. Sherry Hoskinson hasn't been to a game at Joaquin Murrieta since Harry died, but she continues to advocate for the park. Harry's still mine, and I, you know, my relationship with him is not done, and it's not gone. It's very different. And caring about the things that he cared about is a way that I continue to recognize that. I don't want to just continue to look back for Harry. I want to be able to look ahead and look around and and keep track of, and I do keep a track of the ways that Harry is in the world.
Harry's baseball family remembered him in a balloon release at the park in March. A video on the Little League's Facebook page documents the event. One of the planned changes to Joaquin Murrieta Park is the dedication of a baseball field to Harry Hoskinson. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Mariana Dale. Earlier this week at the Museum of Contemporary Art in downtown Tucson, the art filled every space in the building and spilled outside. To some, it may have sounded like noise, but to others, it was an engaging live experience for more than just their ears. Andrew Brown was there. I'm so looking forward to it. I'm so excited to hear everyone. It's gonna sound crazy in here, dude. Last Yay. night it's like <laughs> so loud and echoey. Yeah. It's like a huge cave. It's such a cool space. Like what a good, what a great sound opportunity. I'd never show up at anything on time. Ask anybody, ask Nick. Hi, I'm Smith Darby. Um, I'm playing the beanbag chair, and I'm also playing the Tecate. It just requires relaxation, really. And sometimes it's hard to do that. I'm Christian Ramirez. I'm the Director of Education and Performance at the Museum of Contemporary Art. We have five artists performing in the Great Hall. There's such a big range of musicians in Tucson, and I'd say that like the experimental music scene is doing like amazingly well. And with the variety of people that we have tonight, um, I think that showcases that. I'm really excited for Nick Kelso because he comes from a background of like hip hop and rap. But that beat making is so simple. Like there's so much crossover in like the aesthetics. Just like that kind of heavy beat over and over and over again and just finding weird things to mix into it. It's a weird thing, like where do you, where does this stuff pour, what does it do, I don't know. Yeah, I'm Nick, AKA Young Trucker. I'm gonna start it off by making coffee for everyone. I did this last time and it worked out pretty good. I got most people to drink coffee with me. Although there was some left, so I just ended up drinking hella coffee, but I always like just drinking some coffee and like doing this. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear the other people because like I said, I'm like not a noise musician. I'm just the dude who makes hip hop beats. I slowly just got bored with making the same hip hop beats and then they started to sound sludgy and weird and loopy. So I want to be like in this world. Stuff like this is such a like nerdy in your room by yourself situation. So the other benefit would be realizing that peop other people in the world actually want to talk to you about it or do it, I guess. Schlappi has been doing his synth stuff for a while and he's incredible at it like his setup is always just insane and he looks like a 
spaceship wizard that's just like having the best time. Um, I'm Eric Schlappi. I try to come at like melody and rhythm in unusual ways and flow through soundscapes and go on a journey. I like playing live. It's a lot, what I do live is a lot different than what I record and what I put out on albums because what I want to hear and see live is a lot different than what I want to listen to at home. The acoustics here are crazy. They're super complicated. I mean, if you were trying to reproduce a studio sound in here, that would be terrible. But if you want to make crazy space cave sounds, this is pretty much perfect. I might just set up like a weird space cave noise and hang out with you guys and listen to it for 20 minutes. I think it's going to sound great. Um, I'm really excited that it's so noisy and echoey that I think the reverb that I normally put on stuff can finally be turned down and have some natural reverb, so I'm stoked about that. It's our aerial. Technically, I guess I would call myself experimental pop if I really wanted to name it something. I find such a precious value in live performance and that's why I do the projections with all my sets and everything like that is I think that it's just so massively important to get people to appreciate it in a new way and give them like a true experience. We also heard music from Ryan Shavira and Altrice. That story was produced by Andrew Brown. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood, with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.